It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM, our weekly chronicle of local news with a panel of award-winning journalists from throughout the East End. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton, the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And our panel this week is Denise Civiletti, uh, editor of Riverhead Local. Morning, Denise. Good morning. Beth Young, who's the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. And our own uh, Brendan J. O'Reilly, who is the deputy managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Brendan. Good morning, Joe. So let's let's start, Beth. Um, we want to talk a little bit about Plum Island. Um, Plum Island's been in the news for a long time now. It's been, what, over a decade. There's been conversations about what's going to happen with the island. And there was a new development this week out of Hopog. The, the county legislature took some action, right? Um, yeah, uh, the, um, the 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 uh, Department of Homeland Security owns the island. There's an animal disease research center that's been there since the 50s there, and they uh, built a new one in Kansas, and they're going to close down the one on Plum Island, which is off the coast of Southhold, uh, by 2028. Um, I think that's the uh, nut graph <laughs> on that one, <laughs> inside baseball term. Um, let's see. Um, so... Uh, uh, the uh, Suffolk County Legislature expressed their support this past week for making it a national monument, which is something that the groups involved in the Preserve Plum Island uh, Coalition would really like to see happen. Um, it's currently in federal hands, so it would stay in federal hands under this proposal. But the the reason they're talking about a national monument is it doesn't require um, all of Congress to vote on it. It can be done simply through an act of the executive branch. Uh, and um, and also it, national monuments can um, be managed in partnership with a uh, private nonprofit entity. And uh, the Preserve Plum Island Coalition is working with a ph philanthropist who would really like to be that to to create that um, the private entity that would really um, help uh, guide preservation efforts and any kind of programming on the island and access to the island and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, they've been tr trying to drum up support for this effort since February, the Preserve, Preserve Plum Island Coalition has, and um, all 18 of the Suffolk County legislators signed on this week. Um, uh, one thing they're really looking for, and I don't believe this has happened yet, is to get Governor Kathy Hochul to sign on, mm -hmm. um, because uh, it's in New York State, and uh, that would be a major thing. They would um, need the state to be to be at least willing to go along with this. It seems like a yeah. weird fit, though, a monument, you know, naming the island a monument. It, it just seems it seems just incongruous, just, you know, on the face of it. Yeah, just the, the word monument is very it's kind of throws you for a loop, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's also so so you say it's it's so that the executive um, branch can take action instead of Congress. Or is there a concern that they just wouldn't be able to get Congress to agree on any kind of a preservation effort? Is that is that why it matters? Right. Yeah. I mean, there, it took more than 10 years for the, the uh, to to get Congress to reverse the language that initially said that they would be disposing of Plum Island at an auction. So it, it took 10 years just to get them to rewrite um, leg more than 10 years, maybe uh, to rewrite legislation that uh, that said that the that Plum Island had to be sold to the highest bidders. So that was a recent development, I think, like in the last year or so, that they they managed to get it off the auction block, and now it would it would go to either, if if a federal agency wants it, it could go to a federal agency or the state. They could transfer it to the state, but um, I mean, the federal government needs money just like everybody else, and it is a, it is an asset. It's a big asset. It's eight hundred and some odd acres, and uh, prime. Beaches. So that was going to be my, my question, Denise. Does Plum Island qualify as prime real estate? <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it is. Ask Hannibal. Like, that's that's a real softball. There's a big asterisk on that. I mean, you yes. know. But that's always been the fight about this, right? Is that because of where it is and what it is, 
um, it does have some real potential for development. And the concern was that that might be the direction it would go, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, don't forget, uh, former President Trump, the Trump Organization uh, at some point wanted to develop it. Well, yeah, was interested in uh, conference center condos, golf courses there. I mean, you know, it's it's oddly, in spite of its use by um, ag and markets over the years, it's oddly pristine. I mean, it's really, really beautiful. Beth, I think you went on that trip over there, right? And saw yeah. for yourself. Um, it's It's pristine. It's untouched, much of it. Um, it's really an, an, an odd <laughs> ecosystem there too, right? Because it's yeah. never been it's never been yeah. developed so, other than the, the small portion of you know of, of the lab <clears throat> there. But I mean, as far as wildlife and 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 sea life and and all that, it, it's like it's like a hundred years ago, right? And it's and, huge for migratory birds as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and to their credit, South Hole Town officials have uh, taken steps to protect it with zoning. Uh, they really have. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there it's not, you know, no action and preserve it as a park, but they've taken they've they've put pretty restrictive zoning rules in place for the development for any development there in terms of density allowed and things like that. Right, Beth? I mean, yeah, my, that's my recollection. I haven't looked at this, yeah, recently, no, but that's so, my recollection. Yeah. And it's only a small portion of the island that's used by the, the Animal Disease Center. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that section really needs some cleanup. It's the cleanup's been underway for quite some time. And I'm sure there's a lot of controversy about. So devil's advocate, <laughs> devil's advocate. Yes. Why, why is that not a good spot for Donald Trump to put in a golf course at 800 condos and a conference center and take, you know, let him pay for the cleanup and, you know, and add it to the tax rolls in a way, is it is it really is the, the the primary argument on the other side about the pristine nature of the island? Is that what it is? Yeah, the I mean, environmental, yeah. yeah, the environmental quality of, of it, right, Beth? I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's rare at this well, point. I mean, it's rare. In Southfold also, there's, you know, I mean, the only way to get there would be from the mm -hmm. Orient Ferry Dock, um, which is... Uh, at the very end of South Old Town, which doesn't want any traffic. more traffic. Oh, but oh no, oh no. No one wants any more traffic. Oh no, we could fly, fly the helicopters in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it would just add to the usual litany of seaplane issues. Yeah. Transportation. Uh, I mean, but but I mean, way, there's, so. there's, there's an opportunity because it's so pristine, there's an opportunity to study the the wildlife and, and the environment and and the the ecosystem there um to to help maybe solve some of the problems on um that you know that have resulted from overdevelopment on on the rest of the island right yeah, yeah absolutely and the uh there's actually another island right next door to plum island that not a lot of people know about called, called uh, great gull island that's owned by the i believe the museum of natural history and they go out there and count birds and huh. um, get covered with bird poop and whatnot. <laughs> is it big enough for a golf course? It's not big enough for a golf course. It's big enough big... for some viewing stands and a couple of- Because there could uh, be a finder's buildings. fee involved here if, if I can okay. get in touch with well, uh, you know, Donald I mean, Trump. What's good, for, uh, what's good for developers is good for developers. <laughs> so, but, but it's interesting to me that we've been talking about Plum Island almost since I arrived yeah. here 20 plus years ago. It's, it's been yeah. sort of a, 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 an ongoing issue. And I wonder if this, so the county's approval of this is a step, but I think that you said really the governor needs to, does the yeah, governor I mean, need to sign off or do you know if it's something yeah. that needs to go through the state legislature or? No, I mean, the the, the county's um, support of it is mostly symbolic. It's a memorializing thing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it's really in Joe Biden and Deb Holland's hands. And, um, you know, we could all jump up and down and try and get their attention, but I don't know yeah, what really what gets their attention. The <laughs> Department of the Interior? Is that what? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, okay. I don't know, though. I mean, to, to do anything else with it, I mean, I'm sure that... I'm sure that they're going to talk about cleanup and and all that, but it just this seems a little scary to me. I'm not sure I would want to um, tromp around there, given <laughs> given what they've probably you know um, 
you know, focused on in, in their research and, you know, <laughs> a thing and conspiracy theories about, you know, Lyme disease. And, you know, I'm sure that they were looking at, you know, other stuff too. And I and, think another angle to that, Bill, is not even just like, a, you know, the, the germs or whatever that they were uh, researching there. And certainly there've been lots and lots of um, rumors and theories and stuff, but certainly, you know, like we know from experience out here, uh, unfortunately, that when, um, you know, the federal government has complete control over land without anybody else having any ability to watch what they're doing pretty much and, uh, regulate or regulate them, right? What happens? I mean, there's so much potential for pollution there. I just think that, you know, just from inappropriately disposing of, you know, chemicals or whatever. Like, I mean, look what's happened at, at in Calverton at the former Grumman site. Look, they've had issues like that in West Hampton. I mean, who knows what they were doing there, really? Like, I, yeah. you know, what what I don't know. I'm not that familiar. Maybe you are somebody, but with the with the cleanup that's been going on and what they what exactly they've been cleaning up, because every kind of lab test requires chemicals. Like what they do with that stuff. I don't know. Um, Although so, I do imagine that would have been crucially important to keep that stuff contained um that's you you said you know it, yes. it's have you but, have you read the stand joe <laughs> exactly <laughs> nothing ever goes according to plan Beth, you said you've been there what's it what's it like and what, what are what are the uh conditions like when you go you know to to keep you safe when you go to the island i haven't been to the lab um i've been uh with the divers doing um doing the, uh, the dives of the marine life off of the island. Um, I see. There are a lot of negative pressure rooms there. So um, there's a lot of um, just containment efforts. I mean, that's kind of like what you'll find in hospital emergency rooms now um, since COVID. Um, but I mean, I went walking in the woods in Flanders last week. And when I came out of the woods, my pants looked like they were crawling and they were wow. completely covered in ticks. And uh, I know that's a tangent, but there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to take a walk in the woods at Palm Island for that reason. Uh, it's just it's just me. I don't uh, you know. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can walk walk the beaches. The rocks are very clean. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that. If there, was, if there was gonna be a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> maybe that's where it would start. And you might run into uh, Hannibal Lecter on the beach too. Right. Why not? Uh, this is Behind <laughs> the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Brendan O'Reilly of our own Express News Group. And Brendan, I want to I want to go to you and talk about a story you did this week, which was, you know, we this is, as Beth said earlier about something else, it's a little bit of inside baseball here, but I think we're all sort of celebrating the fact that um, uh, an organization that was formed um, by a group of journalists that include a friend of ours at WSHU in Connecticut um, have successfully sued over a freedom of information request and in in a settlement that they that they made with uh, the Southampton Village government, uh, the village had to pay their attorney's fees, which which is huge. So talk just a little bit about the background of of that lawsuit and and the outcome of it. So it started with Charles Lane, who is a WSHU reporter, which is a public radio station in Connecticut. And he's also a member of the Institute for Access to Public Information, which is dedicated to not only journalists' access to um, getting government information and data, but also the average citizen. And they're they're fairly new. And it's a it's a tough thing to do because it is so rare for attorney's fees to be awarded or to even get them into settlement when you bring a FOIL lawsuit. So it, as Charles explained to us, it's difficult to get an attorney to take that case on, on contingency because the chance of actually getting attorney's fees back for the hours they put into it is slim. 
and and that's that's you know discouraging, right? I mean, you know, I can speak from experience when we decided to go to court. You know, that was a five figure bill that that we had to come up with, and the courts didn't award attorneys fees in our case, and we had to actually split the bill with a local organization that was willing to help fund it because they felt it was important. So it's discouraging just, you know, the cost of going to court to fight these battles. So in this case, Charles was going to every police department on Long Island and asking for their license plate reader data. You know, the license plate reader, it's kind of like a camera, but it scans license plates as people drive by, or you can put it on a police car and then the police car could scan license plates of parked cars and passing cars. And if your license plate identifies you as a scofflaw, it says you have suspended registration, then it makes it very easy for the cop to pull you over. There's also privacy concerns. When there's license plate readers from Manhattan to Montauk or within that range, you could actually trace somebody's movements from Manhattan to Montauk. You see in like law and order, it's always like, oh, they went through this tunnel and used their easy pass or their plate went through this tunnel at this time. Well, actually, you don't need to be going through a tunnel to get in or, in or out of Manhattan. You could just be driving through Southampton Village because they have nine license plate readers. Mm. So when Charles went to ask for this data, because everybody's using the same two, maybe three software companies, he could decipher that they can export the data in a spreadsheet, like an Excel file, and they could pass it to him. When he went to Southampton Village, he sends a request, he gets bounced around from the police to the clerk's office and eventually ends up at the uh, village attorney's office, all through email, and it's all during COVID. And he's saying, this is what I want, and he's not getting responses. And then finally, you know, he gets a response where he gets in the mail an answer to some of his questions, like how many LPRs do you have, where are they located? But when it came to the actual database of where and when everything is, all these license plates are getting flagged, he was given a printout that was snail mailed to him. Now, you can't do a, a search or reorganize data in a spreadsheet when it's a printout that was snail mailed to you. He said, no, this isn't everything I asked for, and I want an Excel spreadsheet. I'll tell you exactly who to call at your manufacturer to have them tell you how to export it. So he's trying to hold their hands through this, but weeks and months would go by between him hearing from the village. So he had like an effective denial at one point because he stopped hearing back from the clerk administrator's office. That's when he appealed to the attorney. The attorney said, well, we think your thing's been fulfilled. And he had to insist that it's not. Sends email, sends email, not getting a reply. Eventually brings the village to court. He files an Article 78 proceeding, which is what you bring when you've exhausted all of your efforts to get a decision through a municipality. It's the same kind of proceeding that you bring if the ZBA um, hands down a decision that you don't like. And once this was at court, he said the village's attorneys were very hot to just release the information really soon, as soon as they could get it. But also to settle the suit, the village agreed to pay attorney's fees. They submitted uh, an accounting that said it was $23,000. The court agreed on a figure of $15,000. And that's how much the village paid out. And that's the most shocking part of all of this is that they actually got attorney's fees because 99% of the time, even though the law says there should be attorney's fees, when a municipality improperly withholds information, the courts don't actually award those attorney's fees. And it makes it very hard to find an attorney who's going to represent you in a FOIL case. And just to be clear, Brendan, in this case, it was a settlement, right? They agreed to this with the village. Uh, but the judge did change the the amount of the attorney's fees, you said. They brought it down a little bit. Yeah, which was pretty typical. Um, they'll, you know, they'll say maybe your rate's too high or maybe you build for too many hours or something to arrive in a figure that isn't going to be overly burdensome. But it's notable that that it took a court decision just in the last couple of years to really emphasize that attorney's fees should be awarded in FOIL challenges whenever the court decides that the municipality is, is at fault and should have, should have fulfilled that request. So, so Denise, you fight these battles all the time. Why does this matter? Why should anybody care about this? Anybody who's listening out there, this, why is this not just inside baseball for journalists? It matters because 
you can't really get the full story and the actual facts unless you see the documents, period. I mean, that's the bottom line, because unfortunately, you can't just go by what people in you know public office tell you about them. You just can't. I mean, I, to me, that's just a fact. I mean, anybody here have any other experience contrary to that? I mean, you need to see the documents, um, even when it's something that you've done a lot of reporting on, that you've interviewed a lot of people about, you know, you need to see the documents. And as Brendan just illustrated, you, you know, they'll, they'll try to be very selective when they show you the documents, like not giving them the spreadsheet, but giving them a printout that didn't have all the information that they could, you know, analyze themselves. So, um, and it's this a is constant, public. It's a constant it's public information. Well, and it's not just journalists, Joe. I mean, and you no. said you know it, it's inside baseball for journalists, but there are a lot of citizen activists out there who are trying to keep an eye on on their local governments alongside all, all of us working for for newspapers and, and and media. And imagine them being faced with. The idea of a, a $23,000, even $15,000 legal bill to try to get information from the town government that, that they're trying to keep an eye on. It, it's just, it's. Uh, our, our records access law, I, I can't speak for you know other states, but like the records access law in New York is really terrible. It really is. I mean, there's no one to enforce it. Yeah. You know, citizens have to enforce this, this law. Yeah. And then when they do, as was stated, they have a hard time getting attorney's fees, even when the municipality is at fault. And there are just so many ways that the public agencies can just kind of jerk you around when, uh, you know, when they want to by delaying and delaying and delaying. I mean, everyone will remember probably the, the case that was brought by, I think it was called the Empire Center a couple of years ago against the state health department for dragging its feet for months and months to release the nursing home data during COVID. I mean, you know, where finally a court said, hey, you can't, because the law allows, the, to just clarify, the law allows like the town clerk, the county clerk or whomever to just keep saying, oh, we'll, we'll give you that, you know, we'll get back to you in another month. We'll get back to you in another two months. I mean, this happens routinely with FOIL requests. I mean, that's been everyone's experience here, I'm sure. And, you know, effectively especially if you're working on a story that's timely and that you know while you're being kind of jerked around and dragged out getting the access to documents that you need to effectively report on a story <clears throat> while that's going on the municipalities are moving forward with approvals yeah. <clears throat> right i mean that's the reality they're they're hoping you're going to get so frustrated or so <clears throat> bored or move me. past the story that you're just going to go away and you're, and you're yeah. gonna go away and you're not going to you know continue to seek that that information and 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 while i i don't you know i i, I think they've certainly a lot of municipalities have have, have learned that about our our, yeah. our information laws and you know, and use that to 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 their advantage when they don't want that information out there. There's no it, enforcement mechanism. There are no penalties. You know, I mean, it's just they've got really nothing to lose. But there's, there's an ultimate stuff. point where, where it's like, okay, take us to court. If you feel like taking mm -hmm. us to court, take us to court. But who can afford to do that? That's the problem. Brendan, you're yeah. you're also president of the Press Club of Long Island, so you're involved in these conversations a lot. I know about access. In your experience, and, and I mean here, both both in your you know you know in reporting on the East End, but even talking to other journalists throughout the region, how much of this is willful on the part of the 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 officials, and how much of it is just ignorance of the law and and confusion about how how that happens? So how much you know is there a way to know? Can we can we know how much of this is willful? It is really hard to know what's in somebody's head. Uh, you know, there's been times where I've sent in a FOIL request and I'm supposed to get an acknowledgement within five business days. There's never any excuse to not give an acknowledgement within five business days under the law. But somebody two weeks later could say, oh, sorry, I, I must have glossed right over that email. And now you're 15 days behind where you were supposed to be. 
and there's nothing you could do about it. And was it willful that they ignored your email or was it just ineptitude that they ignored your email? And then they're supposed to, once they acknowledge it, get you what you asked for within 20 business days, or they're supposed to tell you it's going to take longer, or they're supposed to tell you, no, here's why I'm saying no, here's who you can appeal to. And if you don't get that any of that within 20 days, they're in violation of the law. Is it because they got really busy and they had so much stuff to do? They're juggling too many foils. There was a big investigation at the police department. Or do they just willfully put, put it off as long as they can? And they say, well, if it was really important, that individual or that reporter would have sent a follow-up. And I think that's a lot of it sometimes. And Charles Lane says this. They wear you down through attrition. They could just ignore you and, you know, you send three three emails and maybe that municipality only answers every fourth email. So they could show the court like, oh, well, I, I was in communication with him in case, God forbid, they ever got brought to court. But really, they're hoping that you're just going to drop it and go away and and not press the issue. Because as reporters, we, we have other stories that we have to move on to. Citizens have lives and jobs that they have to get on with. They can't send an email every 20 days and say, hey, you're outside of the time frame. catch up with me. So willful or not, I would say it, it really doesn't matter. That is better. And that really speaks to the need for, the, the incredible need for resources for investigative reporting. I mean, it's very time consuming, it's expensive. And, um, and, you know, and because you have reporters who are doing investigative reporting who are also doing other things, um, a lot of things end up falling through the cracks. No and, and there inevitably comes a point where this, the, what you're looking for, the information becomes stale, yeah. or it might even become a mood point because, you know, I, I don't, I mean, you know, we go through this all the time and all they need to do is within that 20 day period, send you another email that says, oh, it's going to take another 20 days. It's going to take, I mean, I, I went through this a year ago with the state DEC. Um, I'm kind of going through that right now with the state education department, uh, foiling for documents that I foiled the school district for, and they really just haven't responded. They, they I got the acknowledgement letter. I got, we're going to need another month. The month came and went. They haven't gotten back to me yet. In the meanwhile, I foiled the state education department. I got an email that said, oh, we'll, we'll get back to you again. We'll let you know on October, I forget what, third or whatever. Um, you know, so like at that point, it it may lose relevance, you know, so it's just it's a messed up situation. It really is. And um, I don't think politicians in Albany have really any appetite to fix it. At least they haven't shown that they have that. So. But that's part of the problem. And Brendan, I you know, it's yeah. like aggressive bureaucracy. It's like using the bureaucracy <laughs> against yeah. you. And, and even I was struck in your story in Southampton Village. They didn't even know who the appeals officer was for a FOIL request. And there was confusion about that. The mayor had to step in and say, no, it's actually me. And, and for years, the village had operated with the idea that FOIL requests had to go through the police department if you were looking for police data. It, it, there's so much confusion. And, and Denise, I think, is right that yeah. there isn't much appetite to clean this up. But part of the yeah. problem is everybody's got an interpretation of the law and, and a yeah. lot of the villages and school districts and towns can get their attorneys to say, well, this is our interpretation of the law. And it, it makes it very difficult to enforce anything. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, even when you go to the committee on open government, right. Which is a state part of the New York state state department. And they are, uh, I don't know. I mean, they're they're tasked with interpreting the law. And I, I'm not even sure because they have no teeth, frankly. I mean, there's nothing that they can really do, but they give advisory opinions to municipalities, to other people. Um, and it's always couched in like, well, you know, it could be this or it could be that. And they give you I mean, it's, their advisory opinions are useful because they give you a litany of you know, citations to court decisions so you can see what courts have actually ruled in a similar case. And that's really all that kind of controls. But again, that only matters if, um, you know, if, if you, they pay attention. And, and if you can go to court, which you know, is not feasible. I mean, so, so you know what? The, I'm sorry, but just the one thought is that the former director or executive director of the Committee on Open Government, Bob Freeman, 
um, he used to always say, you know, the best thing that you can do as a journalist is expose this, expose what they do, write about it, get editorials published about it, you know, expose this so that people know. And, you know, I feel like that's really our best shot at making a difference in this in this realm. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry, Bill. No, I was just going to mention that, um, that you know, <clears throat> excuse me, our assembly member, Fred Thiel, had um, introduced revisions to the FOIA law to that, that would um, impose penalties, um, you know, I'm looking at $1,500 if a court would find access to records were denied and, you know, and, and then if uh, if orders weren't obeyed, an additional $500 per day. But again, that 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 you, you have to go to court to get that. And, and we're seeing that that that's the issue and that's the problem. And a lot of municipalities know you know they got nothing to lose we're not going to go we're not going to go to court unless it's Brendan. Yeah. You know, let's let's not lose sight of the fact though this was a this was a, a positive development right i think that <laughs> if this case could be seen as precedent then sure maybe other municipalities are going to say well we definitely don't want to be on the hook for this and that's a big reason why so many municipalities will just delay withhold or not take foil requests seriously because it's so rarely that they're sued. And when they're sued, it's so rarely that those lawsuits are successful. You know, they, even if they think they're going to win, you want to not get sued over some technical detail, like you took 21 days instead of 20 days to respond. Yeah. Sure, you you know, the court will dismiss the case, but the village or the town or the police department at the county, they still had to pay for a lawyer to go defend that case. So there are more expenses to this than just how much the village had to pay out in attorney's fees in this example. And, so, and, and let's let's hope that this was a, a learning experience for the officials at Southampton Village Hall that that, you know, wh whether or not there was a malicious attempt to, you know, to avoid giving uh, Charles Lane that that information. Now they're seeing, OK, we've we've got to get our ducks in a row here or we're going to be liable, uh, you know, again and again for for attorney's fees if we don't do this thing right and so hopefully maybe that loosens up things a little bit in the village and and they there's been some instructions uh perhaps on how to handle foil requests um you know at, at the village level i've said it a, a million times before but um i was an editor in pennsylvania pennsylvania has similar um open open meetings laws and and records laws and i know their open meetings law if if uh, officials violate the open meetings law, it's actually a criminal act. It's a it's a summary violation. It's not it's nothing serious. It's a traffic ticket. But I can tell you from personal experience, when you stand up at a meeting and someone's about to go into an illegal executive session, and I was able to say, you know, you all may be committing a criminal act by doing that. That executive session didn't happen. They wow. they decided not to do it, it gives some teeth to the law in a way that I think New York lacks. So uh, credit to, to Assemblyman Thiel, though, for making an effort to try and tighten it up. But it's I, I think, I, it's, I think it's I think it's an issue, issue he cares about. But I think Denise yeah. is right. There may not be an, an appetite among his colleagues to uh, absolutely any measures like this, uh, you know, approved. Especially after they see what Brendan. nursing nursing home data can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, but a quick question for Brendan. Um, I haven't read your article yet. I'm anxious to to do that. But I was just wondering, did either side make the uh, settlement agreement public? The settlement was there. A it was just like one page saying, like, we agree to okay. discontinue this for for attorneys fees. And that was it. So yeah. did they did they agree to Was there an agreement to provide the, the information somewhere or? Yeah, I, I didn't catch that in writing, but the you know okay. Charles did get the information. Okay, it came from it came from Charles's organization, didn't it, Brendan? Well, it, it, Charles's organization. It, it was basically Charles was the name on the lawsuit. It wasn't brought in the name of the organization, but the attorney representing him was an attorney acting on behalf of the organization that's on the board. Cody Morris, I believe, was his name. Got it. Because that's All another right. frustrating thing. You have these lawsuits that go on forever and then they get settled by the municipality. 
and they agree not to make it public. That's a yeah. big frustration. That's well, I crazy think they stuff. can't do anyway. that anymore. The 58 helped in one regard because <laughs> yeah. if they fired somebody and they settled and the settlement would say confidential. Now, because of the repeal of 50A, which was a law that afforded privacy to personnel, um, if somebody was disciplined because they were found to have committed misconduct, or maybe they get fired for that and the village settles and says, well, we won't discuss this. Now, retroactively into the future, that doesn't matter that that clause is included there for confidentiality. You could still request it under the freedom of information law because 58 was repealed. And the idea was that the public's right to know could not be bargained away. So it doesn't matter that they struck a deal. The municipality had no right to make that deal. Does that it only apply like, to personnel stuff or? Sorry. Uh, in my experience, we've been able to get lawsuits. Um, I always ask for the stipulation of settlement, and I haven't mm -hmm. told my municipality that we're not allowed to have it. The problem is you don't always know these things are getting settled or that they exist. A lot of it, you know, I go into e-courts and I track cases against mm -hmm. municipalities that I cover. And that's often the only way that I know these cases exist. Yeah, the, the repeal of 50, yeah. that, that, that was right after, that was about police misconduct at the time, right? Yes, yes. but yes. that really applies to all employees. Right. right, all public employees, yeah. Yes. But like, I, I've been in situations where they have, there's a lawsuit ongoing about, you know, the right to develop a piece of property, regardless of what the master plan said, you could do with that property. They want to go back to the old liberals, yada, yada, yada. And, it's like they settle it, but oh well, this is we're not you know it's not disclosed. The only thing that's on the e-court's record is you know it's been discontinued per stipulation. Sometimes you get a piece of paper like that, and now you want to know the specifics. What did they? You know, I'm dealing with that right now. They settled a case where you know they actually passed a resolution to appropriate money to pay for a piece of property that had been illegally disturbed and with wetlands and things. And the town is, has purchased it. And I'm still waiting for that stipulation. So Con confidentiality anyway. in government is the third rail. I think it's necessary sometimes, but every time confidentiality and government inter intersect, uh, it's, it's a moment to be careful because uh, that's what we've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Brendan O'Reilly. Uh, we also have Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. And Denise will stay in the courts because the courts are so much involved in government out here. Uh, there was another court case this week that we were paying attention to because it has to do with dredging, which is always a, a topic of conversation throughout the region. And this one is, it involves Southhold and the waters off Southhold and uh, what to do with dredge spoils. Can you just kind of briefly sum up what, what the uh, ruling says? Sure, um, I, I'll try. It, it, <laughs> it was a court case brought by the state of New York that um, Southhold joined, the town of Southhold joined, but it really affects entire Long Island Sound, the, you know, which is an es national estuary of significance. Um, they sued the federal government, the EPA, because uh, the EPA wanted to and wants to um, establish another open water uh, dump uh, in the waters of the Long Island Sound, close to uh, two sites in one dump, er two areas in one dump site um, in the vicinity of uh, Southhold lands, uh, Fishers Island and uh, and, and the, the Orient Point, I think. Um, and, um, you know, this is material that's dredged from the bottom of uh, rivers and harbors to make them navigable for boats, uh, recreational boaters, commercial, you know, boats. Um, and it largely benefits the state of Connecticut because, uh, and the state of Connecticut actually joined the, uh, the suit on the EPA side because they want to be able to dispose of the, what's called dredge spoils um, and that dredge spoil material. Um, the problem with that is it's not just inert, you know, harmless material necessarily. It is uh, often material that contains a lot of uh, toxic substances. It's often polluted material that 
uh, is coming off the bottom of these water, the bottoms of these waterways. And, you know, they want to dump it in, in a, an open dump site in, in the waters of Long Island Sound, which, you know, federal, state and local governments have spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to try to restore. Um, and to some extent, it seems like it's been working and uh, various life uh, forms of returning to the waterway. Um, and, you know, officials, like every official in, in the region of New York anyway, was against this. They had mm -hmm. hearings and stuff, and, you know, they were very vocally against it. And, um, but the court, uh, the court ruled in favor of the EPA. Um, and so one of, one so of the things I'm forward. One of the things I'm intrigued by this, though, and Brendan, we can talk about this a little bit with Southampton Village. Um, when anytime you talk about dredging, and I, I know Denise, in these instances, we're talking about dredging for navigation purposes, but I know that in some cases, and Southampton Village is one of them, there are conversations taking place about the need to dredge, for instance, Lake Agawam. And the whole point of dredging Lake Agawam is that the sediments in the bottom have become so polluted that they're they're contributing to the poor condition of the lake. But when you pull those dredge spoils out, you have to get rid of them somewhere, and that's an that's an onerous task, right? It's it's you all at the moment, at least prior to this uh, to this ruling, you had to take them off the island and and you had to dry them first. You know you couldn't haul wet wet dredge spoils, you had to let them sit at the site and dry out. It's a, it's a complicated process. In the village, they've been talking for years about how to clean up Lake Agawam and dredging has been on the table. I, decades ago, I think they said they dredged the north end because that's where all the road runoff is coming in and that's where most of the sediment's going to be. But they're talking about a, a full dredging would cost tens of millions of dollars uh, offhand. I think they were estimating $70 million and it was going to take at least three years if they did it one way where they dredge a lot at once, let it sit to dewater, taking up a lot of parking spaces, probably smelling, not looking great, and then shipping it off the island. And that would take three years or so. For like a, it would have to go to like a hazmat facility or something, right? Because it's got... It's I mean, it's not radioactive, but it would have to go somewhere where they could safely dispose of lead and arsenic, mm -hmm. because that's a problem with Lake Agawam specifically. That's why it can't just be uh, dumped on the beach somewhere or or just put in the regular uh, transfer station. Uh, the other plan is that they could use these on-site dewatering trucks that would have a press. So you've ever seen like a towel press where you put a wet towel through and it comes out mostly dry on the other side? That's what they would actually do with dredge spoils. That process, though, would take 10 years. You wouldn't have to let stuff sit in dewater. You could get rid of it as you go. The trucks could just be constantly moving for months at a time, and then they might take a break for part of the year and then start up again. But that would take 10 years if you wanted to do the whole lake. So, Denise, what's wrong with the decision to allow the dumping of this stuff into what's basically open ocean um where i mean is that is that is well it's in it's in the sound right but it's i mean you know technically open waters is i mean what's the problem here the problem is pollution i mean yeah. you know it's polluted material and there are other ways that it can be disposed of but it you know they're more expensive I mean, think, harken back to a time not all that long ago, honestly, when we used to just take our garbage and go out and dump it in the ocean. You know, I mean, that's how we disposed of garbage until the infamous Long Island garbage barge. You know, <laughs> that's really what kind of, you know, it, that brought attention to that. The garbage barge didn't trigger the stopping of that. But I mean, you know, that's what we did. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's like it's wrong to discharge runoff directly into surface waters. You know, we have all these pipes dumping, you know, um, runoff into Merritt's Pond in Riverhead. I mean, now it's, you know, and, and for, for proof that it's not healthy material for life, um, just, you know, take a walk in at, at Indian Island County Park and go to, there's an area where they dumped a bunch of dredge spoil. You could see it even on an aerial, you know, photo 
uh, on Google Earth or something. And, you know, it's like a moonscape. You know, I mean, it's barren land and they're trying to, I'm not sure the status of that project, maybe you, one of you knows better, but, you know, they were trying to restore that with, you know, plantings and recreate wetlands there. But it's just, it's dead, you know. And I think that speaks to what they're putting there, you know. Um, so just because it's easy and cheap doesn't mean it's what we ought to do. That's the I think the bottom line. But um, you know, I, it was supposed to open water dumping in Long Island Sound was supposed to stop permanently until the EPA came out with this plan, and I think it was 2016, and um, you know, to extend it to another 30 years and to even create a permanent, a new permanent site in the eastern region of the Long Island Sound. So, and I think uh, a big part of the issue here is, I mean. Dredge spoils in Connecticut, and I mean the rivers in Connecticut, which is where most of this material would be coming from, have have been in industrial locations for you know mm -hmm. since the industrial revolution. You 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 drive down ninety five, mm -hmm. you see all the factories there. So you know the dredge spoils yeah. on Long Island actually tend to be a lot cleaner than than in Connecticut. Um, and and these the this site it's. It's just outside of New York waters. So it's basically like the currents push it into New York. So Connecticut is all for this because they want their rivers yeah. dredged. Yeah, and New York says, hey, it's coming right into our waterways. Yeah. Seems like the courts and, and the state officials that are charged with uh, environmental protection have been sort of going in the other direction the last few years. And, you know, when you look at the, the mine uh, the mine sites, uh, sand mines and, and things, you know, the towns have been fighting with the DEC over sand mines. The courts have sort of been ruling in favor of more, more intense use rather than less. Uh, it's a little bit alarming, which I'd like to slide into a, to another topic, which I think is sort of related. And that has to do with, uh, we had a story in the East Hampton paper this week, Bill, that um, the, they're going to so the state with the town is going to start cutting down more trees on Napig in the state park there. Uh, 3,000 more pine trees because of the southern pine beetle. They had already taken down, what, 2,000 trees early this year. And, um, and, and, seven, and 17,000 a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, and it's... They, it's, they it's, thought at the time that, that they might have, you know... <laughs> found a, in essence controlled um you know these pine bean beetles when when they got rid of um all those trees but it, it just um you know they just they just keep coming back and you know part of the problem is you get rid of these trees on on public lands um but but they they exist on you know private homeowners have have these trees and and don't cut down the trees and and so these the beetles just keep spreading and um, you know, and officials were saying this week that, you know, while they had once hoped to, um, you, you know, to stop the spread of the beetles, they've just pretty much given given up on that. Um, and they're they're um, replanting it's just triage, basically. It, it is. And they're, they're going to re they're replanting with white pines, which are less susceptible to the to the pine beetles and, and, and all that. And they're just going to at this point, it's 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 a matter of letting mother nature take its course and and just get rid of all these trees i guess and you know the effort is like you said it's just it's cleanup at this point you clean up these infected trees and you know um and, and all that although I, I i think a lot of times you know that creates another problem and we've talked about that before you cut down these trees and then you just kind of leave them there and they become um, you know, fire hazards and, you know, and a problem to the environment and, and all that. To be clear, to be clear, by the way, cutting down the trees and leaving them there does eradicate the beetle problem. They can't really get from those trees to other trees that the, the nature of the beetles that that does work on that. But as you said, right. they, don't, they, don't fly, they don't fly well. Yeah. But yeah then you've got all these. And, and I guess the forest will eventually absorb all, all that, but it, it's still you know, it's still an issue. And, you know, the last 20, 20,000 trees altogether. To these. It's a lot of trees. And they it had sure a big is. fire down there not too long ago, right? I'm sorry? They had a big fire down there this summer, right? They they did. I don't know. In the same area? Trees, but yeah. 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 Yeah, it's definitely a cause for concern. And Denise, there's another pest that's coming into play up your way, right? You're, you're 
you've got another issue. Well, I it, I mean, it's dwarfed, I think, by um, by this problem, because uh, I, frankly, I don't think that the trees that are affected by this particular thing are, are as, uh, you know, as numerous as the pine trees on Long Island, but um, they're essentially, I think, street trees. Uh, ash trees are being affected by um, the emerald ash borer, and uh, the town highway department has taken down, the highway superintendent told me, like 100 trees uh, that have been, that were planted, you know, in subdivisions or uh, by developers along roadways, uh, ash trees that are just, you know, dying. Um, and mm. it's because, because of a pest, um, you know, uh, I think that we're dealing with a lot of new and different pests. It might be a function of climate. It, I, I'm not sure what, but, uh, you know, you've got the spotted lantern fly now. Too. I was going to bring that up. Big, next. big problem. I know Brendan has written about the spotted lantern fly and that's, uh, we only have about a minute or two left, Brendan, but, but that's on the horizon, right? It's already on Long Island and it's slowly creeping east. So eventually it's going to get to the hop farms. It's going to get to the vineyards. And that's a real threat to agriculture. And how does it, it, it migrates, basically it uses human beings to get around for the most part, right? They lay their uh, egg, egg, uh, not sex, but uh, <laughs> masses. Lay like a, masses of eggs. And they might get them stuck in the bumper of somebody's RV that was sitting in a campsite for a week. And then that mm-hmm. RV goes home. And now those eggs hatch in a new area. And some, and that, of them, some of them may be even on Beth's genes. So because, you know, that's the problem. You go out, you bring bad stuff back. No yeah. question. Um, but you know, Brendan, you, you mentioned it briefly there's a real threat to vineyards in particular, right? The, the lanternfly could really be devastating. They like grapevines. So Mm -hmm. that's a big issue. And there's, there's ornamental trees that we like that we're going to miss. So it's going to be a threat to people's personal properties. It's going to be a threat to nurseries. Um, the, The, the philosophy is if you see a spotted lanternfly, kill it. There's so many in Manhattan now, they don't even want you to send a sample to the DEC or um, ag and markets. But if you see one out east, you should immediately report it because it's still a novel thing out east. And kill it. And kill it. They, they want you to kill it if you see the, the lanternfly. So if you're not familiar with what a spotted lanternfly looks like, make yourself aware because uh, we can all use our we can all use our shoes to help <laughs> this effort. Um, this is a shoe leather effort for real. Yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are out of time. Uh, good conversation this week. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Brendan O'Reilly of our own Express News Group. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you being on the panel today. Thank you. Thank you, too, to Bill Sutton, my co-host. Bill, thanks as always. And thank you, Joe. And we will see you and uh, all of our listeners and viewers on the television uh, next week on Behind the Headlines. Thank you, guys. Yeah.